Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across the front lines. Update on diplomatic developments from Germany, Hungary and Poland, and Dom explains the crisis in the Red Sea and its relevance to the Ukraine war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 21st of December, one year and 300 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in the air again, continuing the trend of uh, of recent weeks. Ukraine shot down 34 of 35 Russian drones launched uh, in an overnight attack. This is according to Ukraine's air force. So Russian occupiers, is the quote, Russian occupiers attacked with Shahid-type UAVs from three directions. From Shadar, that's the far east of uh, occupied Crimea. That's over near the Kirsch Bridge. From Primorsko-Aktarsk, that's on Russia's Sea of Azov coast. From Kursk in Russia, about 150 k's north of Kharkiv as well, according to the Air Force. They were talking about multiple waves of attacks coming through the night. Through the night. So air alerts in many Ukrainian regions across the centre, the southeast, the north and the northeast lasted for hours. Two women were killed in Nikopol, that's 50 k's. Well, there's, there are different Nikopols. This one I've checked. This is 50 k southwest of Zaporizhia on the north bank, the right bank of the Dnipro death zone, not the one over uh, further to the east. There was also shelling in the Sumy area all through yesterday. Now, the front line in the east and the south has seen continued Russian pressure, continued efforts to achieve something to be portrayed as a success uh, as we get towards the year's end. They have achieved small gains meters sometimes hundreds of meters but look at the uh, look at the unit of measurement i'm referring to there so michael mcfall u.s ambassador to russia between 2012 and 14 now professor of political science at stanford university he says today 
How come no one's been writing about the Russian 2023 counteroffensive that completely failed? After sending tens of thousands of Russian boys to slaughter in Ukraine this year, what gains did Putin achieve? That point has been backed up today by retired US General Ben Hodges, who said the Russian narrative about Ukraine losing and Russian endless, uh, Russia's endless resources is false, but accepted by too many hand ringers in the, in the West. Nine years of war, all the advantages, and Russia still only controls 19% of Ukraine. So, yeah, a useful perspective, I feel. Now, separately, Ukraine's Air Force spokesman, uh, Yuri Inat, said that, well, he said 3,700 Shaheed drones had been fired at Ukraine in the past 15 months, with 2,900 shot down. The interception rate is lower for missiles. He said Ukraine had downed 1,600 of the roughly 7,400 launched by Russian forces since the start of the invasion. Now, I report those stats because he said it, and they do seem to chime with our, our sort of assessment of it as we've been talking through the, uh, through the years, years plural. But I would note, and I would just for perspective, air defence, Ukrainian air defence has got a lot more capable and integrated in recent months. So I would expect the interception rate to be much higher now than in August 2022 when Mr. Enat's stats begun. So it'd be interesting to see a, a sort of comparator kind of graph. Um, I imagine the, the curve, if you like, of, of successful interceptions would have gone much, much higher. Almost if they've done 34 out of 35 last night, it's, all, it's up over 90 percent, isn't it? Now, sticking with stats and Alexander Stupin, a Ukrainian army spokesperson, had said his country has destroyed 200 Russian tanks in the past two months alone. He said in a little over two months, the enemy has lost almost 25,000 people killed and wounded in Donetsk Oblast alone. And about 200 tanks and more than 400 other armoured vehicles have been destroyed. He said 80% of those losses were near Avdivka. You know, just just points you back to the, the comments by Ben Hodges and Michael McFall. And finally, a few more stats. Well, finally, for this little bit anyway, a few more stats. Ukraine has scaled up its production of first-person view drones in recent months. So Alexander Kamishin, who's Ukraine's industries minister... He said that 50,000 of these drones have been produced since the start of December. FPVs, you may remember, so the first-person view drones, this this phrase that that we've all got to get used to because it's going to stick around for a while. They're basically modified civilian drones, uh, relatively cheap, flown directly onto targets as opposed to kind of having a a parabolic curve or a a certain amount of of energy. They've got to just find a target or or ditch. And also they are armed is is the important point. They're not there just for reconnaissance. Flown directly into targets with explosives attached. Kyiv has announced plans to produce a million FPV drones next year. This is the fight. This is the way that that war seems to be going. Next, Ukraine. Interesting one, this. Um, Ukraine will recruit Ukrainians... Um, living abroad and may sanction those who do not show up to recruitment offices. This is coming from new Defence Minister. I can't, can't call him new anymore, sorry. Defence Minister Rustam Umarov. He was uh, speaking. He's in an interview today with German media outlet Die Welt. So he's in today. He's given them an interview. Now, obviously, it comes in the wake of uh, President Zelensky's press conference on Tuesday when they were, they were talking about this this requirement from the military of 450 to half a million new soldiers. Z- Zelensky, at the time, he said that, that he was sort of not minded to, to immediately sign up to that without um, a number of key issues being addressed before he could you know, officially support it. Uh, 
he reportedly instructed Defence Minister Umarov and, um, and Valery Zaluzny, head of the armed forces, um, to formulate a new plan for mobilising a huge number of people. Uh, Umarov said that Ukrainian men living abroad would first be invited, his word, invited to report to recruiting offices, but added that measures would be taken if they did not show up willingly. He said, we are still discussing what will happen if they don't come voluntarily. Well, I've just said that. Now, the BBC reported in November that as many as 650,000 Ukrainian men of military age uh, were thought to have left the country for, or mostly for Europe, elsewhere in Europe, since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And just as a reminder, under the current martial law in Ukraine, it's prohibited for men aged between 18 and 60 to leave the country, barring special circumstances. So this discussion about do you mobilize where do you get the where do you get the people from to uh, to put into uniform is very live and is gathering pace and momentum and that is a very interesting development there now yesterday we spoke of putin's flirtation with the negotiation fairy i said at the time he was talking about oh yeah negotiations i said it was hogwash designed to flush out those in the international community who would like to grab at this idea of negotiations, which right now would be on terms unfavourable to Ukraine, rather than stick side by side with them uh, in their fight against Russia. In case there's any doubt, responding to a question yesterday, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov explicitly stated that the Kremlin is uninterested in negotiations with Ukraine. However, In order to keep the misinformation charade going, in the next breath, he said the prerequisites, his word, prerequisites for negotiations are absent. So I think that pretty much sums it up uh, in a nutshell. So Russia is not interested in negotiations until the prerequisite of Ukraine being defeated is in place. It's basically what they're saying. Now, the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, say that this feigning of any interest in negotiations with Ukraine is done in order for Russia to cast itself as a responsible party and then blame Ukraine for refusing reasonable Russian negotiations. So it rumbles on. The um, uh, If we've already got Schrodinger's drones, here we've got Schrodinger's negotiations. That it's uh, They're not interested, except that they are, as long as it's on their terms. But they're really not interested. And then finally for me, Switzerland. Switzerland has announced $13 million in winter aid for Ukraine, announced a new 11.5 million Swiss franc, that's just over $13 million, winter aid package for Ukraine yesterday, brings the total brings the total of Switzerland's winter assistance to Ukraine to around 26, 26 million Swiss francs, about $30 million. $30 million being roughly the cost of one refurbished leopard tank that Switzerland won't allow Germany to send to Ukraine. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you so much, Dom. Joe, let's go to you next. There's been quite a few updates across Europe uh, in the diplomatic and political space. So where would you want to start? Maybe Germany? Yeah, let's let's start in Germany, where the federal prosecutor, who's the prosecutor general, sorry, Peter Frank, has filed a motion in Frankfurt to confiscate 623 million in seized Russian assets which have been frozen by Berlin. That's according to the newspaper De Spiegel. The funds historically belong to an unnamed subsidiary on the Moscow Stock Exchange, which was sanctioned by the EU in June 2022. And these funds would be redirected into Germany's federal budget if the claim is successful. So a G7 decision to freeze Russian assets immediately after the February 2022 invasion has estimated 
approximately frozen around £230 billion of Russian assets. Russia has threatened the European Union in basically in return, saying and plan the EU to give some context has said it will um, look into using the profits generated from frozen Russian assets to basically give to Ukraine. And this is what the Russian finance minister has said had to say about that plan. We also have enough assets that are frozen here in Type C accounts. The figures are not small. The income from using these funds is substantial and certainly also be used if a decision is made by our unfriendly partners. One example of that is, and it's actually quite interesting, we should probably do some digging into this at some point, the largest ever insurance claim against theft is being made by a a company at the moment because of planes that have essentially been lost to um, Russia when the war started and everyone closed their airspaces, planes weren't allowed to leave Russia and Russia has kept sort of billions of pounds worth of leased planes. But yeah, we should go into that, maybe do a deep dive at some other stage, because that's an interesting one. But yeah, there's lots of stuff in Russia that basically Russia is threatening to keep as well. So Germany has said it will provide an additional 88.5 million euros to help strengthen the resilience of Ukraine's energy system. That comes as, we all know, Russia is targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure over the winter in the hope of basically freezing Ukrainians into submission. Back to Russia, the Foreign Ministry spokesperson, spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, has warned the deployment of German armoured tank brigades to Lithuania from 2027 would lead to an escalation of military tensions between Russia and NATO. German soldiers will permanently be stationed in Lithuania, which shares a border with Belarus, and it comes after Denmark became the latest Scandinavian country to permit permanent US troops on its territory basically as everyone is bolstering that eastern flank of NATO by putting troops there. So Britain's enhanceable presence in Estonia, I believe, is where um, Labour leader Keir Starmer has been visiting over the last few days. Over to our friends in Hungary. Some may say friends, others won't say friends. Hungary's Prime Minister has said funding to Ukraine must not be granted from the EU's budget. So Viktor Orban has said, I am convinced that to give Ukraine 50 billion euros from the EU budget for five years is a bad decision. You'll remember back to my reporting from the EU summit last week when Viktor Orban vetoed a sort of a really key financial lifeline for Ukraine being drawn out of the EU's budget. So with leaders not expected to overcome Hungary's opposition, they are looking at doing what's known as an intergovernmental agreement. Basically, EU 26, so minus Hungary, will come together and then hope they can formulate a plan outside of the EU structures. So this is what Viktor Orban has to say. They want to give the money to Ukraine from inside the EU budget. Hungary wants to give it outside the EU budget. They have the possibility, if we don't agree on this, to resolve this outcome outside... uh, Sorry, resolve this outside the budget but don't have the option of resolving this from the EU budget without Hungarian approval. So he's basically saying, yeah, go and do it outside of the EU's budget. And then over to Poland, the Ukrainian infrastructure minister has met his counterpart in Poland to discuss a cargo blockade on their shared border by Polish truckers. The Polish drivers have been blocking several crossings with Ukraine since Monday, demanding that the EU reinstate rules where Ukrainian drivers would need permits to operate in the block and the same for European truckers looking to enter Ukraine. Infrastructure Minister Oleksandr Kubikov 
said on Thursday that he met the newly appointed Polish counterparts. Poland has just changed their government. And he said, we held the first meeting with the newly appointed Minister of Infrastructure of Poland, a guy called Darius Klimczak in Warsaw. We discussed several issues in the transport sector, but the main topic was unblocking the border. So, yeah, whether that's going to work, but as we know, the land, Ukraine's land borders are ever ever important because of the Black Sea presence from uh, Russia. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for that. Let's zoom out a little bit then from Europe and Ukraine. Let's go south to the Red Sea. Dom Nichols, you've been looking into this just a little bit for us. We know this is a bit, this is the thing, right? It seems detached from what we're talking about, but there may be players we're familiar with lurking in the background, and this could have a profound impact on countries around the world in the next few weeks and months. So Dom, can you just introduce what's happening in the, in the Red Sea? Yeah, so the Red Sea, that bit between the Suez Canal flowing down to around the Horn of Africa into the Indian Ocean. Last few weeks, there's been a lot of activity, drone strikes, ballistic missiles, mostly attributed to the Houthi rebel group based out of Yemen, Iran-backed uh, group there, that are either um, trying to fire things, we think, at Israel or just at any US target in the area. They've got a lot of... Um, they've got... Um, uh, Navy ships, Navy, U.S. Navy there, <laughs> Navy ships, um, or also at commercial vessels. We know they've tried to board and have successfully boarded some vessels there. There's been a resurgence of piracy off the uh, off the sort of Somali coast. Potential there, suggestions that's been spiked a little bit by Wagner. The Wagner Group still exists, <clears throat> might not have Pogosian at its head, but it still exists and is active across Africa. So the Red Sea has seen a number of drone and ballistic missile strikes. <clears throat> in the last couple of weeks attributed to the Houthis. So that in and of itself is is quite a development. It speaks again of how non-state actors, terrorist groups, for want of a better word in this context, are having uh, can have an effect on the globe. And there's a, a very interesting point here. So that in and of itself is interesting militarily about the cost of some of these things, you know, the, the propensity of drones, how cheap they are to manufacture... Even the ballistic missiles, although somewhat inaccurate, but they don't cost as much as the air defence missiles and the systems that are kind of needed to shoot them down. And that is the false. That is true, but that is the false. That is the false way of thinking about it. You've got to think about the cost of what the target might have been. So, if the Houthis fire missiles and sink a ship, or blow up a load of oil storage facilities in Saudi Arabia, as they have done in the past, you know the potential there, the cost of that. That's the, that's the cost you've got to look at, not the cost of the air defence missile to, to shoot the thing down. So it is a worrying development on the on the military front. But if you zoom out again a bit more and look at the, the global economic implications here, there's a really interesting article in today's Telegraph by Philip Pilkington. Chap I don't know, spoke to him for the first, first time this morning. Seems like a nice, nice guy. Um, he's written in our business section today, worth a look. It's online as well. He's talking about how the second Suez crisis is upon us. Now, the first one. 1956, we kind of gloss over a little bit, not this country's finest hour, so let's park that one for a moment. But in the second, he's saying that what the Houthis are doing, it, it could well be that they are, in effect, establishing a, a de facto blockade on the Suez Canal by preventing commercial maritime vessels entry into the Red Sea. The economic effects of this would be profound, he says. And in just the last week, 
He said global shipping companies have diverted around $35 billion worth of cargo. If you don't go through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea and you go around the coast of Africa to go from the, from the west coast of the Atlantic through to, um, through to the Indian Ocean and, uh, and further, further east, that's a long way around. There's a big old lump of Africa in the way. So it's hugely costly to, to not use Suez Canal and the Red Sea. Now, the shock to trade could be similar, he suggests, to that that we experienced during lockdown when the whole global supply chain seized up. But he's saying this one could be even worse. I'm going to quote a little bit from him. He said, during the lockdown, supply chain disruptions, policymakers buried their heads in the sand. Economists should know that a large disruption to the supply side of the economy will result in inflation. But policymakers, giddy from the powers of the lockdowns granted other sectors of government, ramped up fiscal expenditure and loosened monetary policy. We have been living with these effects ever since in the form of spiralling inflation, a cost of living crisis and high interest rates. Now, he also references Politico, who highlight the cost here that the Pentagon is saying about the, about the cost of missiles and drones. But I would argue, I would urge you to put that in, in the context of what's the cost of the target they're trying to hit. Anyway, Philip says, our second Suez crisis is here. The world could look different after it than it does now. There are many unknowns and we have far less control than we would like. We should batten down the hatches. Another inflationary storm is coming over the horizon. So he's suggesting if, if the effects that we're feeling now, which, which are possibly or largely drawn back from the, um, the policies enacted during lockdown, this could be very similar if, if the whole global supply grinds to a halt on account of this, this action by the Houthis, then the, the wider implications, not only the immediate term, but also years down the line, could be very profound indeed. And so I think that's worth noting, worth having a look at. And just, you know, I don't think I'm being too tin hat conspiracy here, but, you know, the Houthis are very, very heavily supported, almost couldn't exist without Iran backing them. And it, it's not too big a leap, I don't think, to suggest that Russia has been asking Iran maybe to put a little bit of oomph and a bit of pressure on their proxies down in, in Yemen to do this because it diverts the world attention yet again. We're already trying to cast our eyes in a number of different ways of what's happening in Israel and Gaza and so on. If we're now looking also at the Red Sea, it yet again diverts our attention potentially from Ukraine. But also, if this does, if this does mess up global trade, it's going to be having a profound effect on the on an economic system which Russia is increasingly disconnecting itself from or is being disconnected from. And therefore, they might think that they have nothing to lose by, by spurring the Houthis to take this action. Just a thought. Thanks so much, Dom. Let's go to our final thoughts. I don't know who wants to go first. Joe, why don't you go first? I don't have a thought per se today. But what I do want to do is give a shout out to Anthony, one of our regular listeners who got in touch with us to share some messages from the Hungarian government. So Anthony lived in Hungary for many years and as a result is still attached to their mailing system. And basically since the European summit, they have been bombarding people's inboxes with these messages. And I will read just uh, two of them to you. Um, so dear sir, madam... Hungary is under enormous pressure to immediately agree to Ukraine's membership of the European Union against Hungarian interests. There is 
Also, enormous pressure on Hungary to contribute to financing of the Russian-Ukrainian war. This is in spite of the fact that Hungary has not even received the funds needed to increase the salaries of teachers. We have launched a consultation on the protection of Hungary's sovereignty. You can have your say on Ukraine's membership of the EU and financing the war. Let us stand together for Hungary's sovereignty. Second one, dear sir, madam, the consultation questionnaire on the protection of our sovereignty is now available online. These are issues that fundamentally affect the economy and security of our country. Brussels has decided to start a session at negotiations with Ukraine. They still want us to contribute to financing of the war. They have not asked the people about this, but the Hungarian government is doing so. Please have your say. You can now do so online. And then it lists a website for Hungarians to go and visit. It's quite disingenuous of the Hungarian government to be saying this. Uh, yes, Hungary didn't take part in the accession uh, vote, as we reported the other day, but Hungary has plenty of opportunities. Viktor Orban himself said Hungary has about 75 opportunities to block Ukrainian Ukraine actually joining the EU. And we've got to remember, this is a process that could take decades. Some people talk about 2030, but actually that is probably on the optimistic side. So it's just Hungary sort of using Ukraine and the Hungarian government using Ukraine and the e, a bit of EU bashing for basically domestic consumption and yeah, trying to bring teachers into it and basically ensuring that everyone likes Victor Orban's worldview in Hungary. There you go. Thank you, Joe. Dom Nichols. I also am going to refer to a, a listener email that we got. And thank you so much for sending these, as I always say. Now, I sought permission from the uh, from the listener to, to read this out I, I said i'm very happy to change names actually i don't need to don't need to change names don't not going to use a name but got permission and uh, this is in relation to i was saying earlier on about well i occasionally talk about switzerland's position of neutrality and this idea of neutrality and where is neutrality as a concept in the 21st century when you're faced with a an illegal invasion by a permanent member of the security council no other way to dress it up it's a permanent member of the security council and it's illegal that's it. Don't give me any whataboutisms. That's it. It's illegal. Right. So an email from uh, a Swiss national. I'm in my 20s and I live in rural, a rural area around Zurich in Switzerland. I have been listening to your Ukraine podcast nearly every evening for months now. Right. I want to thank you a lot for being so persistent in reporting the current situation of the war between Ukraine and Russia. The war has changed my perspective on Swiss neutrality. I used to be patriotic about Swiss neutrality being such a robust tradition for many years, not expecting a full-scale war could happen in Europe. I remember serving in the armed forces as an officer, training recruits when the invasion broke in the news. For most people in Switzerland that I know, the injustice of the invasion was clear from the beginning on, even more than the annexation of Crimea in 2014. This made it difficult for me to continue supporting neutrality. What good does it bring to pretend to be militarily and or politically neutral when the injustice is this obvious? I think in the interconnected situation Switzerland now stands with its neighbours, being neutral only enables political opportunism and ignores how history has changed. I welcome that some parties now openly question Swiss neutrality, starting a discussion about its role in mid- and long-term future. While change will probably be too slow to affect support for Ukraine in the war positively, it might have started a domino stone falling in the direction of Swiss alignment towards Europe, be it in or outside of the Union. End of the letter. Thank you. You know who you are, because you and I have have chatted 
over uh, social media, uh, sorry, email. But thank you so much for sending that in. Really do appreciate it. And I really do appreciate you you giving me permission to read that out. I think that is a vital, a vital contribution. What is neutrality um, today? As you say, when the injustice is this obvious. And I think to have the self-awareness to examine these hard-held beliefs I would love everyone to be neutral. I would love there to be no war, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, but I, I just don't think that's realistic. So your position as a former officer in the armed forces who believed in neutrality to have changed your opinion in the light of new facts, I think is very commendable. And I wish there was more of that honesty around Europe, particularly in the corridors of power. So I urge all of us to continue this, this conversation about what neutrality means and if it's if it is still helpful or if it is now unhelpful and i would urge us all to have this conversation with people around us it is not an easy one because it comes from a position of you already sort of see the accept the darkness of humanity rather than saying why can't why can't we all be friends but i think it is important to have so thank you so much for sending that in i welcome any more thoughts on this let's do keep the conversation going and yeah and as i say we do read every email that you send in and we we try and respond to as many as we can but thank you so much for your thoughtful considered and empathetic contributions to this podcast ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.